There's value in diversity, period. So you have race, ethnicity, gender, age, religion. I think about diversity as strength. I went to a Chicana Latina conference in, in July. And while I was there, I presented a paper. It was called um, Surviving Single Motherhood in the Academy and Beyond. And right after I was done presenting, um, a woman in the room, another woman in the room said to me, um, and to the whole crowd, you know, when I was explaining, you know, the challenges that people go through or my own experience, my own testimonial, right? And right away, she, her hand shoots up and she tells me, um, this is why you don't have children in graduate school. Like, kind of like shaming me to the audience. I was a graduate student who shared my office with four other students and I would have to kind of kick them out and hope that no one barged in when I was trying to pump. Wow. Um, yes, <laughs> that was difficult. Hello and welcome to another episode of Voices of Diversity. I'm your host, Gabriela Casares, postdoctoral scholar here at UCHRI. In today's program, we'll be discussing the theme of mothers of color in academia. The voices that you just heard come from two of our three guests, Irene Sanchez, Latino Studies instructor and author of the blog ChicanaPhD.com, and returning guest Whitney Pirtle, Assistant Professor of Sociology at UC Merced. Together, their testimonials point to and speak to the daily challenges and struggles linked to being a mother in the ivory tower. So, why mothers of color in academia? Higher education carries with it the misconception that the quote-unquote flexible schedule together with extended summer and winter breaks provide an environment conducive towards the demands of parenthood. The reality, however, is that numerous practices are set in place to make motherhood, specifically in academia, especially challenging. For example, in a recent study by Marianne Mason and Mark Golden, in their project titled, Do Babies Matter? They found that women who enter a tenure track job with a child that is six years old or younger are 21% less likely to attain tenure than their male counterpart. For male faculty, however, the opposite is true as younger children function as the equation for academic success. Interestingly, these numbers do not account for the role that race, ethnicity, sexuality, and or class play, all factors that further decrease the likelihood of tenure. Graduate students who are mothers of color confront similar challenges and stigmas, often balancing teaching, researching, and motherhood, but often with less resources. While undergraduates of color also face similar challenges, this episode will focus on the experiences of faculty and doctoral, doctoral students. We will hear first from Cynthia Estremera, PhD candidate at Lehigh University located in Pennsylvania. She is also the author of the blog, The Unapologetic Mother. One of the hard um, things about academia and motherhood is that they're usually framed differently when they're separate. Um, in regards to how they function intersectionally, in regards to how they affect race, um, how would they affect someone re in regards to race or class or sexuality. But motherhood is seen one way when it comes to race. Um, Black and Latina mothers are viewed negatively, um, not to mention poor mothers of color are, are stigmatized. And even if we go further and mothers who, are, who don't identify as straight are also stigmatized. And the famous Audre Lorde said in her biomythography, Zami, that 
Black motherhood is a powerful source of agency, and it sort of works to counteract the negative assumptions about being a mother. Now, couple that with academia, a white male-centered space that women of color are disrupting, and you have a whole new set of intersectional challenges, especially for mothers. Um, It's already incredibly difficult to be a woman of color, a first-generation scholar in a PhD program, but now you're a mom, and every single misconception and myth is placed onto you. Class, together with race and gender, play a critical role in revealing the multiple hurdles that doctoral students like Cynthia face. Mothers of color in academia from working class backgrounds, for example, face additional financial hardships that middle class and upper upper middle class peers do not. This includes taking on additional work and loans, student loans, in order to make ends meet, as well as building the social capital needed to succeed. In part, resistance lies in telling the stories and being vocal through a shared collective struggle necessary in dispelling the misconceptions and stereotypes linked to mothers, being a mother of color in academia. So unfortunately, the biggest challenge that I faced when it came to motherhood was being stigmatized as either lazy or not committed or selfish. Um, And I wrote The Unapologetic Academic Mother on my blog because I wanted individuals who judged me to understand that my motherhood made me a stronger scholar, a more persistent student, and I was able to become selective about the things that I chose to focus my energy on. Giving voice to these perspectives functions to reinforce the personal as political by reclaiming and redefining the spaces of academia. In order to expand on this point, we will hear again from Whitney. She also authored the article, Birthing Both a Baby and a PhD as a Woman of Color. I wanted to tell my story because I I don't think it was just my story. I think there are other women of color who are academics and struggling um, to kind of find the place. For instance, when I was in my program, um, I didn't have any women of color mentors by the time, or there were there were none in the department when I started. So right off the bat, there wasn't a real person I could connect to on both the academic and a personal level. Um, but I did seek out mentors in other spaces. And then when I got pregnant, I realized there was also no women in general in my department who had. Um, had their children either on the tenure track or when they were in grad school. So again, I was facing another time where I just didn't see my experience reflected in those who were supposed to train me and kind of tell me how to do this. So I felt like I didn't know how to, how to be a mother graduate student, how to be a woman of color academic and merging those, those aspects of myself. Women and mothers of color in faculty positions still remain largely underrepresented in tenure-track jobs. While these numbers are slowly growing, studies reveal that it is amongst adjunct and lecturer positions. These job titles tend to have little to no job security. Moreover, with few role models that reflect the multiple identities linked to motherhood as a woman of color, fragmentation or the need to divide up one's sense of personhood is a daily reality with concrete consequences on both a personal and professional level. When I became a mother in grad school, you know, a single mother, it just, um, there was all sorts of things that came up. Um, At that point, I was already... um, done taking coursework. I was actually pregnant though while I was finishing coursework. It was my last year as a TA in American Ethnic Studies and 
for me, it, it was just, it, it's so central to recognize it in our struggles and the, the things that we need. And, you know, I had other friends who became mothers while in graduate school too. And I feel like sometimes we're, mm, not with all professors, you know, but sometimes it feels like uh, you're cast aside or um, they, they doubt your seriousness. And so all those old things that we read, <laughs> maybe in um, academic articles, like I read in that class, you know, women of color in academia, having my son those last few years, you know, obviously I'm not going to conferences. People aren't offering me opportunities in my field to publish or to, you know, present with them. Um, and I think that was partially, you know, after I had my child and it, it's unfortunate, but I feel like those are things kind of people don't talk about coming up, you know, through academia and, you know, at the same time, people are like breaking these barriers, right? For more of us to come through, I feel like a lot of those barriers are still there. While everyone's experience is different, fragmentation speaks to who is and who is not represented in the academy, as well as the types of resources that are and are not available. On the one hand, I did have people reach out and try to support, but they were supporting from their position. So maybe they were fathers dealing with this sort of issue. Um, but at the same time, they were tenured, you know, tenured, um, males. And I just felt like I could take pieces of their advice, but it, it wasn't, it didn't ring all the way true to my own experiences. These divisions speak to power structures and mechanisms that enable these silences. Fragmentation, like, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's not only what parts are highlighted, it's almost like what parts are also hidden, you know, what parts you have to hide. And, you know, like being a woman who's who's pregnant, you don't necessarily have to hide that, right? But I think because it's it's not valued in in the larger society, um, the labor that we do as as women one, and then you know as mothers two, I think um, it's further devalued because you brought up you know men who are who are fathers don't necessarily have to hide it, and you know I think affirming we are who we are and we are whole, and you know all the things that we are um, is so important and so critical highlighting both daily and institutional struggles is vital. I mean, I know so many moms who whisper to each other and seek advice and shelter from the scathing opinions of others. Um, but like I said, I do believe in transparency. Um, and uh, I think that if, it, if I wasn't vocal about my challenges as a mom twice in a PhD program, then things for the next mothers in my program wouldn't be, would be much more difficult. I feel like even though I went through hardships, that other moms and moms to be shouldn't have to go through what I did, and they should be. They should also be made aware of those who are supportive and those who will be their village. So if we continue to sort of pass the line of this is the community of individuals who will support you, who will um, lift you up in this process, and and there's sort of that um, safety net then we will begin to feel more comfortable having these crucial conversations that change the structure of the institution because people believe that babies don't belong in academia. I think that if we don't begin to continue to reinforce that safety net of the people that can make institutional change and can be supportive in those efforts of, of, of advocating for mothers of color, um, then without those two things, then there is no safety net, right? Like, I think there has to be someone that can be there, um, which is why I always emphasize community. And I know many individuals feel alone. Many individuals don't talk about these things because they feel like they're going to be judged. Um, find your community. It could be one person.
Given the lack of representation and the urgent need for mentorship, finding that one individual or individuals requires creativity. And so I had to go beyond my department, even beyond my universities in some instance, to try to look for representation that I could connect with. And so part of that was reaching out to women academics who I saw um, kind of be very visible with their parenting as well and asking about their experiences. Now, we're often trained to do that, right? Contact someone before a conference to t- because you're interested in their work. And so you can, you know, build your networking along the area that you're studying. I also had to do that in terms of um, their individual characteristics. So I would say, oh, I saw that you just did a Fulbright research abroad with your family. That's amazing to me. How do you balance being a mother and doing this research? So I was actively kind of seeking out mentors, not only because of their work, but because because of how they were managing their work with their lives. And so I actively had to seek out mentors. And um, I just recently, within this last year, (laughs) met one Black woman mother who, you know, I felt like I could actually connect in a very deep and personal level. And that was, uh, you know, I'm in the fourth year of being on the tenure track. So this has been a a work in progress. And I'm just now feeling like I have some of the connections that I've been wanting. (laughs) Constructing inclusive professional spaces is an ongoing process. Building critical connections is fundamental, especially amidst the lack of physically inclusive spaces for mothers that many times exist at the university or college level. At Lehigh, we still have challenges. We don't have childcare options. Um, so I commuted every time I had to go to campus from Philadelphia, which is about an hour and a half to two hours, um, because I knew that I had resources in Philadelphia that I didn't necessarily have uh, living in, in Bethlehem. Um, I had colleagues who let me use their offices to, to you know, nurse or pump comfortably. Uh, there's no uh, changing stations, no elevators for strollers. It's, uh, there isn't places that are just dedicated to being a mom. And so you have to try to work to balance that because the university environment makes you fragment those parts of your identity and keep your motherhood separate from your, from your scholarship in that space, like in that actual physical space. And you have to fight to really create a balance to make sure that that's not the case. Resources vary from campus to campus. Many times, however, a proactive approach is required. I did learn that I had to ask for things if needed. So some of my classes were scheduled back to back and um, I tried to make it through those classes without pumping in between. It was um, nearly impossible. So I did have to ask and get excused to be late sometimes if I needed to go handle that. Professors are often happy to help when the issue is brought to their attention. They were accommodating um, when I asked. So oftentimes it would just, I think it wasn't something that they were thinking about actively in any, um, they just weren't thinking about it. And so I had to bring, bring it up. And sometimes that can be awkward with a faculty member you're not close to, especially if it's regarding issues like pumping, you know, saying I'm, 
I'm leaking in your class. I need to, <laughs> I need to have a break right now. That could be a really awkward conversation. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, very real. <laughs> but it's real. And it, it, that happened to me. And um, so I needed to do something <laughs> about it. And so I had to bring it to their attention. Sometimes those needs are very basic. For example, asking to be excused from class to pump. At other times, they are far more complex. There were definitely a few resources that I wish I would have had when I was a graduate student um, that I did not have access to. So one um, would be subsidized childcare, university childcare. I was, you know, I sent my son to the childcare on campus, and it was a great program, but it was extremely expensive. <laughs> Um, and having, you know, I think I was partnered at the time, so that made it possible, but I don't think I would have been able to pay with just my graduate stipend alone. Mm -hmm. The current university I'm at, UC Merced, does give a stipend to graduate students so they can send their child to the university daycare for a fraction of the price. And I think that's really important. Um, it, you just feel more secure going throughout the day, knowing that you can run over to the daycare if there's ever any problem. Um, so that just adds a sense of security um, and even an ease of, you know, in terms of functionality, if you are um, dropping your child off at the university daycare and then can just run into your office. So I think that makes things a lot easier. So I would encourage institutions to do that. In the opening of this podcast, we heard from Irene Sanchez, who was confronted by an audience member when discussing her presentation, Surviving Single Motherhood in the Academy and Beyond. We return to her response here. I remember after that, that presentation, um, you know, there, you know, part of what is reproductive justice is, you know, choosing, right? Choosing if you even want to have one at all, choosing when to have one, how, you know, how all of those things, that, that's, that's our choice. And so, um, you know, being a mother is, is hard, but at the same time, like, you know, it, it's, part of, it's part of who we are if, if that's what you wanna do. And I just don't feel like any of us should be shamed for, for being any, for any part of who we are. You know, being a mother is a huge part of who I am. It's not everything, but it, it's a huge part of who I am. And I just don't feel like anyone should be shamed for, for anything. Um, that is part of their their identity and the core of who they are, and and that's again where the intersectionality you know comes in. It is just that shame, like we shouldn't be ashamed of it, you know, and we should have that support. And when you're when you're there trying to kind of get it, you know, you got to find those people that are willing to kind of have your back. I think, and so you know, creating that community um, and that those bonds, it, it's hard, but there's there's people out there, you know. And I think once I was ready to be more vocal about it. I think I found more of it and, and I'm thankful for that. And so I think talking to each other is important. Being vocal about these matters is key. Cynthia again. I know that the institutional structures that are in place are not, the culture is not there to, to sort of empower women and empower them to, to become parents. And what needs to change is, the way that schools and institutions and universities see their graduate student parents and support them and also their faculty parents. Um, that's foundational. And most students and most faculty are too scared to ask for help because they don't want to seem like they're not taking their work seriously. Um, so once the culture continues to change, 
people will think of academic mothers um, differently and we can advocate for a shift in the types of resources that parents receive. When it comes to mothers of color in academia and diversity issues as a whole, centering the multiple dimensions of systemic oppression is fundamental. Failing to do so only reinforces specific limited definitions in terms of who quote-unquote belongs in the academy. We can't leave any parts of who we are outside this, you know, so-called ivory tower, right? We can't leave it outside the gates of academia or at the gates of the university when we enter it. You know, we, they cannot pick and choose what parts uh, we come into the classroom with either. Various policies have been enacted to address some of the concerns raised in this podcast. For example, in 2013, the University of California Office of the President established lactation facility standards and also issued the accommodations for nursing mothers. But standards and requirements are separate issues. Lactation rooms, however, are a step in the right direction. The factors fueling unwelcoming environments for mothers in general and those of color are institutional. More spaces are needed to share these experiences and best draw attention to the daily and long-term challenges necessary in taking the strides needed for systemic change. That is all the time we have for this episode. Thank you again to our guests, Cynthia Estremera, PhD candidate at Lehigh University, Irene Sanchez, Latino Studies instructor and author of the blog Chicana PhD, as well as Whitney Lester Pertle, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of California, Merced. Please join us for our next episode on diversity and professionalization. For more information on UCHRI, please visit uchri.org. Thank you.